The Book of the Prophet Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the God, the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened and, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stomped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cry, cried for help from the depth of Sheol, you heard my voice. For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight, nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. 
Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word, of the, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Then the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint, and he begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant, for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow up, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? So today we begin a sermon series on the book of Jonah for three weeks in the midst of our psalm series. We're in the middle of a psalm series, but we're going to plop 
into that three weeks on Jonah and then come back to our psalm series. And today we're specifically, specifically going to be looking at Jonah's chapter 1 and 2, especially chapter 1. And now we've read the story, we're acquainted with it, we know the basic idea of what it's about. And so I want to, as we, as we go through these chapters, as we begin going through chapter 1 and 2, and especially 1, I want us to have some things in mind. In these opening chapters, God is going to be chipping away at Jonah's paradigm, at the way he views the world, at the way he views outsiders, those outside of God's people, Israel. And in so doing, as we read the book of Jonah, we may find that God is chipping away at our paradigm, our view of the world as well, the way we approach outsiders. So I want us to have these sort of questions in mind as we're going through the text. We're just going to walk through the text. We're just going to enter into the story, see where it leads us. But let's keep these things in mind. What does the book of Jonah teach us about God? Specifically, what does it mean for God to be a God of compassion? How does God view unbelievers, those outside of his covenant people. How, does, how should Jonah view himself? And then by extension, how might, how might we view ourselves? And then the real question is, so what? What's the implication of all that? What's the implication of how we view God, how we see God in the book of Jonah? What's the implication of that for us? As we enter into the story and follow Jonah, we find ourselves confronted with the character of God. And as we watch as Jonah's dispositions and attitudes are exposed and revealed by the character of God, we will find that our own attitudes and dispositions may be challenged in profound ways as well. So let's begin with a quick prayer that God would work in us through these chapters of his his word. God, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for the privilege it is that we have to sit under your word, to learn from how Jonah contrasts your character. We ask that we would encounter you as we look at these pages of scripture, of your word, and that through your spirit you would transform us, that you would take your your purpose of this word and that you would affect it in our lives. Amen. So let's begin with verse 1. Just dive right into the story. We see in verse 1 that it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And so we're initially just, we jump right into the story. We get that the word of the Lord came. Now this is very formulaic language. We see this throughout the Old Testament, very formulaic language for a commission of a prophet. The word of the Lord comes to them and they're told, this is what you will speak. Or the word of the Lord comes to them and they're told, this is what you will do. And we see that our particular prophet is Jonah. And so we ask, okay, so he's commissioned. What is his commission, though? What is he called to do? Looking at verse 2, it says, Arise, God says, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, 
paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so his commission, we see, is to go to Nineveh and preach, to preach repentance. But Jonah flees this commission. He flees, he refuses. In fact, we see that he's actually going in the opposite direction. We're not entirely sure where Tarshish is. It's probably a city in Spain. So that's west. He's going into the Mediterranean. We at least know that. Assyria, the empire of which Nineveh is a part, that's east. He's heading in the wrong direction. So why is he doing this? Why does he absolutely disobey God's call. He's not even staying still. He's going in the opposite direction. Why does he do this? Why, why might we say, as some have suggested, does he resign his prophetic ministry? What's going on here? Well, as many of us know, Nineveh, as I just said, is a capital city uh, in the empire of Assyria. And that has a lot of baggage for Jonah, for obvious reasons. Assyria was not viewed very favorably There's a couple reasons for this. First of all, they were a powerhouse in that day of an empire. They were expanding. Um, And this is all throughout Israel's history, that they're an expanding empire. And one of the ways in which they expand their empire, though, is not through diplomacy, like you might think of our United States, how we all came together. The way they advanced their empire was by conquest. They destroyed people, and they were good at it. And so they're not... They're not the nice guys. They're they're expanding their empire by destroying people. Furthermore, we see that Israel's history with Assyria is rather shaky. It's it's not the most favorable history. Israel is constantly, that is the northern kingdom, is constantly under suppression, having to pay tributes, having to pay fees because of threats. If you don't pay us, us, we're going to come and get you. And so this is a history of humiliation, of subordination. But finally, as many of us know, Assyria would be that eventual nation that God was going to use to judge Israel, to judge the northern kingdom, to actually deport his people out of the land. And we see this as even Hosea tells us. Hosea, a contemporary of Jonah, that is, Jonah very well could have known about this. Assyria is going to be the people that take my people out of their land. You could see Jonah thinking, if I go and I preach repentance to them, I actually in some way am contributing to my own people's demise. So we can at least in some sense sympathize, we can at least understand what's holding Jonah back. But also we, Jonah is actually mentioned in other parts of scripture. So we see in 2 Kings 14, Jonah is mentioned. And there we see that Jonah is a prophet of Israel's well-being. And this is unusual. Think about most of the prophets we know. They weren't liked. Uh, like Jeremiah talks about this, they get thrown into wells and they get beaten or they get killed. Okay, the prophets, generally speaking, they're talking about God's judgment. People don't like that, just like today. Preach judgment, people tend to not like that very much. Well, Jonah, on the other hand, he actually is preaching about Israel's well-being. He preaches that the land that Israel lost is going to be regained. And so we might imagine, this is a this is a fresh of breath. Uh, this is a fresh news to the people of Israel, so to say. Like, oh, a prophet saying something good. He was probably a popular prophet, in other words. And so you can think of him thinking in his head, "I'm going to lose my popularity if I go and do this. I, I'm known for preaching well-being, health and wealth, we might say. Okay, and I'm going to go preach judgment, and I'm going to potentially 
see the Ninevites actually repent, our enemies are going to come and potentially repent, what would people think of me back home? We might think today of a contemporary example being like an evangelical pastor in France, who France just being uh, attacked by uh, members from ISIS, it would seem. Um, he gets a sense of a call to go and actually preach the gospel to ISIS. You could see there's a level of animosity there. There's a, you could see there's a, there's a sense of hesitancy. What will my, my people think? The people of my own countrymen. What would they think of me going and do that? And even in himself, there's a sense of animosity. Or we might think even of a radical example of, say, there was a Christian a Jew that survived the Holocaust and immediately after the Holocaust goes and preaches the gospel to these Nazi soldiers. There's, and that's an extreme example, but there's a level of animosity there. What will, my, what will my people think? There's hesitancy. But also if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, we get Jonah's own words. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah actually tells God why he didn't go. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. This is why. Because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from calamity. He, he says these things as, as if they're bad. Jonah's problem, in other words, in a sense we might say, is not theological error. It's not that his view of God is wrong. He knows God is a God of compassion. He knows God is one who relents from disaster. In fact, he's citing Exodus 34, which is a passage where God himself reveals his own character to Moses, and he says these things. He's quoting God back to him. And so his problem, we might say, is not, in a sense, a theological error. His sense is that he does not embrace the goodness of that theology. He does not like the implications of it. He does not like what it entails. He does not like that it might entail God's compassion, not only to his covenant people Israel, but to Jonah's enemies. And this is a constant challenge that we face as well of not only having right theology, but also rightly embracing the goodness and the entailments and implications of that theology. So he knew the character of God. He knew that God was a God of compassion, but he did not want to see God demonstrate that compassion to the Ninevites, to his enemies. And so it seems that we find Jonah is a bit, we might say, nationalistic, or ethnocentric. He was concerned for the well-being of his people, but not so much those outside of his people. In so doing, he seems to be anti-Gentile, that is, anti-those who are not Jewish. He seems to be anti-God's mission beyond the borders of Israel. In so doing, he's actually bucking up against what Israel was called to be in Exodus 19, that they were to be a royal priesthood. They were to be a royal priest. In other words, they are to be a nation through whom other nations come to know God. They mediate as priests. That's how they were to function as a nation. And so we see that Jonah as a prophet, it seems that the author of Jonah here wants us to see Jonah as representing Israel. He represents his countrymen. He's a representative figure. 
He represents their disposition as a prophet. He represents their attitude. And the question for us is, is, does he represent us as we read this today? Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, and laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Notice Jonah's deliberate movement here, that he's constantly and progressively moving down. We see in verse 3 that he goes down to Joppa. Continuing verse 3, he goes down into the ship. And now in verse 5, it says that he has gone below in the Nazbi, or literally gone down into the lower part of the ship. His movement seems to express his heart. His downward trend, physically, symbolically represents his deeper and deeper progression in rebellion to God. And notice, as we talked about Jonah being a little bit ethnocentric, even as he's in a boat fleeing to go preach to pagan Gentiles. Even as he's in a boat doing that, notice where he is. He's withdrawn himself. It's as if he can't even be in the presence of them. He has to seclude himself. There's a bit of a smugness we see. But despite Jonah's inability, uh, or his ability to withdraw himself from these Gentile pagans, he has an inability to withdraw himself from God. We see that God is one step ahead of him. He causes a great storm that threatens the lives of all on board. And notice, they're all crying out to God. So they all cry out to God. A God, we might say. And isn't that an interesting picture of even what we see today in our society? Of religious pluralism, everyone crying out to the God, so to say, of their own choosing? I think this is a great picture of what we see today. But notice, it's not until they turn and cry to the true God that their rescue follows. But there's an irony here. Who's the ones who are crying out to God? Who are the ones who are expressing a sense of piety and religiosity? It's not Jonah. He's the only one who actually knows the true God. But he's, ironically, the only one not crying out to a God. Have you ever had a moment in your life where it seems like God just hands you an evangelistic opportunity on a platter? You come up to someone maybe and they're like, you know, I've just had a lot of people around me dying lately and it's making me think about the brevity of life and what happens when we die. And you're just like, oh, God just handed that to you. That's kind of what's going on here. I mean, think about it. You got these pagan sailors who don't know the true God and they're like, we're going to die. We're on the brink of death. We're crying out these religious expressions. What does Jonah do? Nothing. Failure. Again, Jonah has got to be one of the worst missionaries. He fails to go on his mission, and then when God plops an opportunity before him, he does nothing. But what we see is that, like we said, he's the only one not crying out to a God. Jonah is actually then, we might say, he's actually shown up in terms of religiosity and in terms of piety by these pagan sailors. 
these Gentiles, the same type of person that he refuses to go to, these people are showing him up in terms of their morality, their virtue, their piety, their religiosity, we might say, regardless of the fact that it's not aimed in the right direction, at least they're expressing something. And I'd like to say that I think today we see the same sort of thing at times. Today, those who are not Christians at times show us up in terms of compassion and religiosity, piety, care for justice. This can even happen today. But the point is in verse 6 that Jonah, a prophet of God, has to be told by a pagan sailor to cry out to God. He's a prophet and he has to be told by a pagan sailor, cry out to God. He's shown up in terms of his piety. Verse 7, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? That is, what's your business here on the ship? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? It's sort of they're interrogating him. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Notice how Jonah describes himself here. What's first and foremost in Jonah's Jonah's self-description of himself? What comes first, we see, is that he describes himself not as a prophet, not as one who worships God, but as a Hebrew. That's first and foremost in his mind. It seems that his identity as a Hebrew is primary and most important to him. His nationalism and ethnocentrism are seeping through like a Freudian slip. And secondly, though, he does describe himself as one who fears God. But as a reader at this point, we have to be a little suspicious. I mean, dude, you're fleeing from God. In what sense is that fearing him? It's a little questionable. And again, I think we see this today. It's called nominalism. Christian in name only. Professing Christ with our mouth, but our lives, our action, even a sense of lack of belief in general, characterizes. But notice also how he describes God. This is interesting. His, he describes God as a God of universal domain. He says that he's, in verse 9, a God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Everything. Universal domain. But notice, these words actually rebuke Jonah's own attitude and disposition towards the pagan Gentiles. If God is a God of the entire creation, then God is also a God of these pagan Gentiles as well. And God too can show them compassion. The same sort of people, again, that Jonah refuses to go to. It's like Jonah is speaking out both sides of his mouth saying, My God is a God of universal domain, except, of course, when it comes to him showing compassion to those outside of Israel. I don't want to have anything to do with that. But, of course, Jonah's description as God who rules all things naturally freaks out the sailors. You can imagine them being like, 
say what? You, you, did you say God of the sea? You, you realize we're on a boat, right? <laughs> Slap. What are you thinking? You're on a boat. You're fleeing a God of the sea on a boat. What's wrong with you? And a boat that we're on. Thanks, dude. But what's interesting here is that besides, a, besides a natural reaction of what are you thinking and being terrified, this God owns the sea. No wonder things are bad. Besides that, we see again the irony that these pagan Gentile sailors who at this point, they don't know the true God, they nonetheless recognize what Jonah doesn't. You can't flee this God. This is futile. And so they, they actually, again, we see that they're showing Jonah up in terms of piety, in terms of religiosity. So we look at verse 11. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Notice again, it's the pagan sailors who are the proactive ones here. They're initiating this. But we look at Jonah, on the other hand, throughout this narrative, he's incredibly passive. He's asleep on a boat. And the storm doesn't even wake him up. He has to be woken up by a captain. Okay, And, and, and he, instead of telling the, the sailors, hey, guys, this is my fault right here, they, he has to wait for them to cast lots, find out, find out it's him that way, instead of being proactive. And this is the part where I, th- I think this one's really funny. You'll notice later, he can't even, he's so passive and so inactive, he can't even toss himself into the sea. He's like, he has to be tossed in by them. He's so incredibly passive. They toss him in. I think it's funny. He's incredibly passive except, of course, for when it comes to fleeing God. Then he's really active. Jonah is dragging his feet when it comes to anything that would bring him closer to fulfilling his mission. But on the other hand, the proactivity of the sailors, again, they're showing him up in terms of their piety. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. In other words, they didn't want to throw Jonah into the sea. That was inhumane. They did everything they could. It was absolute, to avoid throwing him in, that was absolutely an appalling suggestion. They refused. But notice what Jonah does. It's their fault they're in this situation to begin with. Jonah endangers their lives. They, on the other hand, don't want to toss him over. They're going to do everything they can to avoid that. Do I need to say it again? They're showing him up in terms of his piety and religiosity. These pagans, the same type of people that are the same category in Jonah's mind as the Ninevites. Jonah, who does not want to see compassion shown to the pagan Ninevites, is shown compassion by the pagan sailors. And so we see it's only as a last resort that they end up tossing him in. Verse 14, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord 
and made vows. Again, Jonah is shown up again. It's they who pray to God. It's they who are making vows and sacrifices. It's they who seek to be innocent, saying, do not put innocent blood on us. We even see them recalling the words of the Psalms that God does as he pleases. We see that in the Psalms. God does as he pleases. They recognize his sovereignty. Compare that with Jonah who bucks up against God's sovereignty when God in his sovereign grace wants to bestow grace and compassion to Ninevites. In fact, it seems that these pagans may even be converted here. It says that they feared the Lord. They feared God. This fear of the Lord language, which is characteristic throughout the Old Testament of someone who's in a right relationship with God. This language where Jonah actually describes himself as one who fears God is now applied to these ex-pagans. Except here, interestingly, it actually might fit. But notice also, we agreed before, I think we can agree, Jonah's probably the worst evangelist ever. Okay? But notice, you still have conversion. If these are true conversions, you're still seeing conversion here. I think that's an encouragement, a little, just a little aside, a little encouragement to us, that even our evangelist, evangelism is ultimately, the, the, that God converting people is ultimately dependent on him. That even despite our inadequacies, God still saves. Even despite how terrible evangelist Jonah was, they have to like pull, pull things out of his teeth about the nature of his God. But they're still converted. I think that's an encouragement. But before we move on, I want to draw your attention to something huge here. And this is, this is so important for understanding the role of chapter 1 in the book of Jonah. Notice in chapter 1 that we see God is already saving pagans. He's already saving Gentiles. He's already, in other words, chipping away at Jonah's paradigm that God's compassion should be restricted to his people. God is already chipping away at that. Notice the parallel that the author, it seems, wants us to see between the pagan sailors and the Ninevites. We see this through two statements. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. In chapter 1, verse 6, we have the captain of the sailors, a captain who then is like a representative figure. He represents the sailors. Notice what he says. He said something like, let us cry out to God. Perhaps he will relent from this disaster. Well, if we look later in chapter 3, when Nineveh repents, we get a statement from the king, also a representative figure, someone who represents Nineveh. And he says something like, let us cry out to God, perhaps he will relent from this disaster he had planned for us. The same sort of language. It seems that the author intentionally wants us to see a parallel between the fact that God is saving these pagan Ninevites, or these pagan sailors, and in the same way, he can save the pagan Ninevites. The deliverance of these pagan sailors parallels God's eventual deliverance of Nineveh. And so God is already demonstrating to Jonah that his grace knows no bounds. Now, we'll be looking at verses 17 to the end of chapter 2 next week, so we're not going to go through all that today. But I want to point out one thing from chapter 2. Look at the end of chapter 2, uh, verse 9. 
What's the point of God using this great fish? What's this whole, the whole point of this fish thing? Notice what Jonah says when he is rescued. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. And we want to say, Jonah, you speak way better than you know. If salvation is of the Lord, then God saves whomever he chooses. He will show compassion to whomever he wills. His compassion cannot be restricted. You cannot bind it by your own preferences and your own prejudices. You don't hold God's grace on a leash. But ironically, although Jonah experiences salvation and he rejoices in his own salvation, that is his deliverance that God exercised for him through the fish when he would have otherwise drowned, he experiences salvation and he rejoices in that but he doesn't rejoice or embrace the goodness of God extending that sort of deliverance to others. It's hypocritical. It it seems that one of the key points in this whole event of sending the fish to swallow Jonah and rescue him from certain death is to teach Jonah about the nature of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the point, Jonah. God expects that our own experience of salvation boils over in his desire to see others experience that salvation as well. And so we ask as we come to a close, what's the point? And I think by now we're starting to, wave after wave, get the idea of what's going on here. God's grace knows no bounds. It's not limited. It's not restricted by our preferences or our prejudices. Like we said, we don't hold God's grace on a leash. And we see that in the fact that God is already showing mercy and compassion to these pagan sailors, who in a sense, they typify what God can do for Nineveh. He's already chipping away at Jonah's paradigms. And so God's grace knows no bounds. And because God's grace knows no bounds, neither should our evangelistic efforts. Neither should our role as those who bring the message of God's grace know any bounds. As we read even in 2 Corinthians 5, I was thinking that before getting up here, that we're, it's ambassadors, God, God declares these things through us, the ministry of reconciliation. We're given that ministry. We actually reflect his mission. And if his mission is boundless, and he, he's seeking all types of people, then our evangelistic efforts cannot be restricted by our tastes, our prejudices, our preferences. We reflect God's mission to bring salvation to all sorts of people by universally reaching out to all people. And so we see that Jonah, in his role in this book, he's sort of like a foil. He, in other words, he con- we look at Jonah and we see a contrast from the character of Jonah, his attitude, we see a contrast with him and the character of God. And so the book of Jonah is not ultimately about Jonah. It's not ultimately about a big fish. It's about a big God. We see God contrasted when we see, when we see him contrasted with Jonah. And so we see that Jonah, whereas he's stingy and he, 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 he wants to avoid, avoid seeing God's grace extended, God is eager to show compassion. And whereas Jonah, he withdraws from these pagan Gentile sailors. God, on the other hand, 
is bending over backwards, so to say, by sending a prophet to those people who are not even a part of his covenant community. What's with the fact that the sailors keep showing Jonah up? The fact that the pagan sailors constantly show Jonah up in terms of his piety makes Jonah's attitude even more ridiculous. Jonah says, these pagans don't deserve God's grace. Look at them. They're terrible. Well, of course, Jonah. Obviously. But Jonah, neither do you. You're actually no better than they are. We're not going to play this game of who deserves God's grace more. Grace is undeserved. But let's say we did. They have a leg up on you. It makes Jonah's own attitude seem even more ridiculous. And finally, Jonah himself was a recipient of God's grace. God rescued him by sending a fish. He himself didn't deserve to be rescued. How can he then turn and refuse that grace to others? And so the point of application for us should be obvious at this point. The point isn't to look down our nose at Jonah and be like, oh, look how bad he is, look how bad he is, look how bad he is. Now we've done that, but what we find is as we read the book and we begin to criticize him, it's a trap. We find that we're condemning ourselves. We find that we're condemning our own attitude when we're like Jonah. We think of like the prophet Nathan when he goes to David. You are the man. You are Jonah. It's a trap. We get caught in the story, we criticize Jonah, and then we realize we've just condemned ourselves because we do the same thing. So I want to leave us with these reflections. Are there those who, and you probably wouldn't say this out loud, obviously, but those who, if God was to show them mercy and show them compassion, you might you might actually find that a little repulsive, a little offensive. The idea is appalling. You want to say, God, give them what they deserve. The book of Jonah is a rebuke against any brand of Christianity that at its core is angry and bitter towards the world due to its sin, rather than mourning the world over its lostness and desperately seeking its repentance. Let me say that again. The book of Jonah is a rebuke against any brand of Christianity that at its core is bitter with the world, angry towards the world due to its sinfulness, rather than broken over its sinfulness and mourning for it, seeking its repentance. I think it's easy to look at Jonah and say, yeah, but that's, that's crazy stuff what Jonah's doing. I don't do that. But now, notice our world as it's getting, I think most of us observe, it's getting increasingly, we might say, post-Christian or secular. And I look around and I look at the way Christians react. The way we are reacting to the world as it's becoming less and less Christian, I'm not so sure we're that far off. So we of all people, we of all people who have received grace, a grace that both in, that actually enlightens our eyes to know how bad off we were. As we were talking about before in course seminar, that we actually didn't even know we needed grace before we received it. Great, the gra- grace is actually that which enables us to know we need grace. So we of all people should know the gracious nature of grace. We ourselves should know we don't deserve it. Instead of looking down at others, We know the gracious nature of grace. And as Jonah finds out that he's no better than 
than those around him. As we look at Jonah, and he, he's getting shown up, so we know we're no better. It's only by God's grace that we are who we are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's by God's grace that I am who I am. We're no better. We look around, and we're Jonah in the midst of all these pagan sailors. Sometimes they show us up. We're on the same level playing here, here, playing field here. And so we know the gracious nature of grace. The book of Jonah rebukes any sort of hostile disposition. We want to see grace extended. And we, like Jonah, who has been delivered through the fish, we, like him, have experienced grace ourselves. We ourselves have experienced grace in Christ in the gospel. That Christ himself has borne our penalty. That Christ himself redeems us from death. That he frees us from the devil. And so we know what grace is. And so we of all people should be willing to extend that grace and see that grace extended as we reflect God's mission. But maybe for you, it's not as much animosity or bitterness towards unbelievers. Maybe that's not so much your case. Maybe it's that your passion to see souls saved has waned. Or maybe you view certain people as unreachable. I think Jonah has, the book of Jonah has words for you as well. I think the book of Jonah says, look at the God that you see in the book of Jonah. Look at the God who shows undeserving compassion for sinners. Be caught up in the movement of God to save sinners. The, excite, the excitement that that is, that God is saving sinners, that we are ambassadors of Christ, as we read earlier. And that his boundless compassion should be reflected in our boundless evangelistic efforts. But also note that if we view people as unreachable, I think the, the book of Jonah challenges that as well. In the sense that we see in the book of Jonah, God is actively pursuing sinners. He saves people through Jonah's terrible evangelistic efforts. He's sending a prophet to a people that aren't his own, so to say. This gives us confidence that no one is beyond God's reach. We can have confidence in our evangelistic efforts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this book. We thank you that you reveal us to yourself as we see Jonah's attitude and disposition contrast your own. We thank you that you are a God of compassion that you have shown us compassion most ultimately in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place and rose for us that we might have life. We ask that this story would change us in profound ways, that we would be caught up into the vision of how great you are as we see you in this book, and that we would be uh, given a fresh excitement to share your compassion with others by telling them of the good news of your Son. Amen.